Hello, today I'm talking to Mathilde Dochi, who is a food law and regulation expert specialising in novel foods and alternative proteins. Mathilde has full and wide knowledge of the industry across all continents. And she's certainly uh, the go-to person for many startups trying to find their way in this food revolution. She has some interesting predictions too, which you'll have to wait till the end to hear. So I'm Alex Crisp, the host of this Future of Food podcast for TQ. Okay, so welcome to Mathilde Dochi. Um, she is a legal expert in the space of uh, of alternative proteins. Um, welcome, Mathilde. Thanks for having me, Alex. Uh, pleasure to be here today. Good. Could you just uh, introduce yourself a little bit and uh, and tell us what it is you do? Okay, sure. So uh, I'm a food law consultant um, and I'm specialized in alternative protein regulations. So everything that uh, relates to uh, plant-based proteins, uh, fermentation derived and then cell-based uh, agriculture or cellular agriculture. Um, and I was, I first started looking at uh, European regulations. So EU, uh, Switzerland and UK. And then um, I also decided to uh, teach myself how it was working on the other side of the Atlantic. So uh, the US and Canada. And I also know my way around, for instance, with uh, Singaporean food regulations, Australia and New Zealand, because it's the same system. Um, and also at the moment, I'm uh, deep diving into uh, the Gulf uh, region. And I help my clients, so primarily uh, startups, to navigate the regulatory landscape because uh, they may not be aware that uh, when they uh, draft their communication strategy, many terms like uh, organic, gluten-free, uh, vegan, they are actually regulated or uh, sometimes regulated by third parties, so certification bodies. And you shouldn't use the terms if you don't comply with the uh, requirements that are set uh, in the, this um, uh, legislation. Okay, it sounds like a bit of a minefield then. So uh, I suppose be because it's such it's such a new industry, uh, it's really important to speak to legal experts. Um, and I suppose you can I suppose you can kind of guarantee that um, you have everything covered. Yes, like it's very broad. Like when we uh, mentioned like food law, um, like most of the time people will only think about uh, labeling, but it's so much more. It's everything that uh, happens uh, way before. So food safety risk, uh, hazard, how do you do the management of uh, such risk? Uh, also like consumer protections. How can you make sure as a company that your message is like well understood? Um, and also when you are sourcing ingredients uh, to suppliers, because many companies, they are not able to um, produce like all the ingredients needed for the final product. They have to be sure that the ingredients uh, that they want to use is authorized in the, in the place where they want to sell their product. You have many things that uh, don't, are not necessarily allowed in Europe just because they, uh, a certain company hasn't uh, asked for approval yet or just because it has been banned, like for instance, a certain e-number in the EU uh, um, have been banned, but they are still allowed in the in the US. And what happened is like, if you try to import such a product, then uh, high chances that the at the customs, you know, it will just uh, be sent back. 
And so as a company, you can also face fine because you are not allowed to import products uh, that don't comply with uh, the local uh, legislation. Okay. Okay. So were you working in food law before um, you got into alternative proteins? So I started off uh, working for food supplement consultancy just at the beginning of COVID. I really wanted to move uh, to Asia, to Singapore, um, but then it never happened because of uh, of the pandemic. Uh, and I was uh, doing the compliance uh, check uh, for food supplements coming from um, uh, food countries like uh, the US, Canada, uh, Asian countries and so on. And then I switched to um, working for a multinational like ADM, which is a B2B uh, ingredient uh, company. So they supply, for instance, soy protein, uh, emulsifier, like food additives and so on. And I was working in the plant-based division. So I was helping the uh, plant-based companies uh, like around the world that wanted to use uh, the ingredients and they needed assistance, for instance, for labeling and to make sure that uh, they had like the correct uh, macro-biological uh, parameters uh, checked. Yeah. And so at that time I was doing only plant-based, but uh, it was 2000, uh, 2021. And then, you know, alternative proteins was uh, becoming uh, a little bit uh, bigger. And then I learned about uh, fermentation derived and cell ag, and I wanted to do more. So at some point, I decided to uh, quit and uh, have been working for myself for almost a year. And on the side, I'm also like involved in advocacy uh, through um, several um, vegan uh, organizations where I worked on drafting standards to have like a definition that is accepted uh, uh, worldwide. And I'm currently based in Brussels, uh, and I also work for a public affairs consultancy because many companies, they do have the power to have uh, regulations that uh, benefit them, but they need to talk to uh, public officials, so stakeholders, all the people that at the in the EU institutions that know that we have to change our food system, but don't necessarily uh, understand like the technology behind and you just need to have people talking in the same room to one another to make sure you know that uh, we can move forward okay so are you finding that the uh, that the uh, public officials are are taking it seriously um even though it's not it's not yet acceptable on the whole in Europe uh, I would say it depends on the nationality um, of the public officials. Like, I'm not sure if you have seen, but like recently, like uh, Italy engaged in a in a war against um, alternative proteins. Uh, they want to uh, ban the sale and the production of uh, cultivated um, uh, meat, mm-hmm. uh, even though it's not even allowed in Europe yet, because no uh, companies has. Um, has filled in a novel food um, dossier. And you have some countries, like for instance, the Netherlands that uh, with Austria are the only ones to have a protein strategy in place, you know, that uh, um, they want to have a solution to um, move forward the protein uh, diversification, so transition. Um, And I would say that when I talk to uh, public officials, uh, the Dutch, 
are usually the ones that are the most eager uh, to uh, to help the movement grow. But I'm also not surprised because you have many companies that uh, have pioneered in that field, like for instance, Mozamit, that uh, unveiled the very first uh, prototype of uh, cell-based uh, meat, like a burger, uh, 10 years ago. Yeah. And they also um, have to work around with a limited space um, for uh, agriculture and this is why they would like to have this kind of products on the market uh, uh, in the near future but the the way it works in the eu is that you ha have to have qualified uh, majority uh, so it's 65 percent of um, of yes when you ask uh, the european commission and has to represent 55 percent of the european population so it's tricky because some countries are like yeah let's do it and others are like no we are not willing to uh, embrace the change and they also uh, like their reasoning is like we don't want to have this kind of futuristic food because we think it's a threat to our traditional foods and i think it's a uh, very low um like i think it's not even like a good reason you know it's uh, because at the end of the day um who um he's actually eating "Quote unquote traditional food because everything is uh, made in, in a, a through intensive farming and so on. Uh, and but food is also a very sensitive topic where people they uh, associate food as their uh, cultural identity. And if you uh, dare to criticize or say that maybe it could be better, then it's uh, basically an insult. So especially in countries like uh, France or Italy." Yeah, so you've had the same kind of kickback in France, have you, from officials? Mm, yes, like France, actually, back in 2021, uh, they enacted a climate law, a climate change law, and um, cell-based meat is actually banned uh, um, in the law. But the thing is, like, it's not even authorized yet. And it's actually most likely against the principle of uh, free movement of goods in the EU. Uh, and considering that the authorization is um, is given at the European level, uh, then I'm not sure that France will move forward with that type of um, of ban because technically it's against the principles uh, of the of the EU. France, I know that, uh, for instance, like uh, companies like Gourmet have been talking to the French government, you know, to make them understand that it's not the way forward, um, and uh, in any way there will be like uh, a lot of um, dialogues that are going to take place because from the moment a company is going to ask for approval, we have to wait between three to five years uh, to to get a positive uh, answer, hopefully. I mean, how have you found, how have you found the officials in the UK? Um, spoken so no, but the, like the fact that, you know, they are uh, now, for now, they are still playing, applying the EU novel food regulations because since uh, Brexit happened with no deal, they just uh, yeah, had to implement what was written already. But they want to uh, fast track the approval process and uh, to uh, propel the, the UK as a, a food innovation hub. So I think it's most likely that the UK will uh, authorize the first cell-based uh, products faster than the the EU. Okay. Uh, and that's something we can also think about. It's like a mutual recognition, you know, uh, but that's something that is a little bit uh, controversial for some countries because they do like to make their own assessment. And if a product has been allowed in a country, you know, that... Uh, 
is not very transparent in the sense that you don't have a official uh, list of uh, products that have been authorized or if the approval process is not so detailed, it's very unlikely that another country would just authorize something super fast based on this approval that was granted in a third country. Right, yes. I mean, uh, yes, England, the UK, they do have some advantages because of Brexit, but they are slow to apply any of those advantages. Mm -hmm. And the thing that uh, sadly the UK lost is like access also to 27 other member states. Uh, I mean, for the markets, because the way it works in Europe again, is like once it's uh, the approval is granted, you can sell it uh, to uh, potentially uh, half a billion uh, consumers. Mm. Okay, so uh, with the rest of the world in mind, um, which countries would you say after Singapore are closest to commercializing lab-grown meat? I mean, kind of, uh, you know, everyone knows that Singapore have already commercialized it, but, um, mm -hmm. you know, it's it's a bit of a race, isn't it, between the USA, Australia, uh, Israel, maybe the UK, maybe mm -hmm. China. What do you think? So I would say maybe uh, Australia, since uh, Wu uh, like submitted an application like uh, two months ago, and I think uh, the Australian authorities they said that they would need 15 months to give an answer. So hopefully it's going to be positive. But seeing the the pace at which the um, Israel is going, um, I wouldn't be surprised if they managed to uh, you know uh, authorize. Um, cell-based meat like faster than Australia but there like the one of the biggest question mark is like would it be kosher uh, because there is a it's a must it's not something that it's uh, you know nice to have and um, you have also countries that are have invested uh, in cell-based uh, meat company uh, for instance like Qatar um, with good meats uh, they are building a, a factory there but it's also that uh, every food that is uh, sold in Qatar has to be halal. So then it depends if a halal certification body would be keen on authorizing cell-based meat uh, for Muslims, because uh, then not all alternative proteins are treated equally, uh, such as insects. Like there is a debate like uh, in the industry whether or not it should be included in this uh, category, but insect is actually uh, insects are actually not uh, halal and they are banned uh, in right. the majority of the Gulf countries. I've always got the impression when, you know, when companies or newspapers, they talk about alternative proteins and they and they put insects next to, you know, next to some cultured meat in order to frighten people. Mm -hmm. I think it's I think it's more of a um, um, it's, it's kind of politicizing it, you know, uh, to say if you it's to sort of it's to sort of associate uh, alternative proteins with insects, and most people around the world, if they think about eating insects, it mm -hmm. makes them, you know, you know, feel a little bit ill or something. Mm -hmm. um, and I suppose but... in Israel, with the idea of, of of kind of making things kosher, you just need to find a, a religious person who can who can agree that it's kosher. Yeah. Or if they can't agree that it's kosher, they'll just be selling to, you know, external, external markets. 
for sure. And um, like, but in countries that have, uh, you know, strong ties with a specific religion, like for instance, uh, Israel with Judaism, uh, Judaism, and um, yeah, the Gulf country with um, Islam. Um, so you do have like certification bodies like that are independent. So usually they are not like state entities. But then you also have like uh, authorities that is higher, like uh, a chief uh, rabbi or a chief imam. Right. And then it depends which direction this person will go. Um, that will detect like whether or not you have a certification body that are willing to go this way. We have the very same problem in the uh, vegan certification bodies uh, with vegan certification bodies because. Technically, maybe cell-based meat could be suitable for vegans, but the whole point about veganism is like not to um, uh, eat or just consume something that uh, has involved like animal suffering or exploitation. And so, vegans and vegetarians they have been doing very well, you know, without uh, meat substitutes and so on. So, when they are not the target market uh, anyway. Yes. And also there's the argument that, you know, that it is kind of taken from the cell of an animal, isn't it, initially? Mm -hmm. So it is, it's not 100% vegan. It's, uh, I would say like just from a personal point of view, maybe it could be certified uh, as vegan, but then you need to look uh, at the whole supply chain, you know, how the cells were taken, uh, if uh, like the animal suffered, if you did also like animal testing further down the line, because you have some regulatory bodies around the world that uh, won't give you a choice uh, when you pre- uh, present like safety da- uh, data and they deem that it's not sufficient, then they will force you to go um, like a tiered up. So for instance, at first you may have conducted the in silico or in vitro testings. And if the, the results are not concluent, um, are not satisfactory, then they will force you to do uh, in vivo testing. And you have to use animals for that. Okay. Okay. What are the sort of laws that you are looking at? So we are looking at uh, novel food regulations. So it's basically a food that has never been eaten before. And in order to be authorized, you need to have uh, regulatory uh, authorities to um, have a look at the production processes um, and to make sure that the food is safe uh, and the amount of data that you have to submit depends uh, on the re- uh, the jurisdiction. Um, some of them, they don't require so much. Some of them is like way more extensive. Uh, and then um, we also are looking to like uh, general food law. So in the sense that uh, uh, you have um, requirements that apply to any type of food, like for instance, like labeling, uh, nutritionals, uh, good uh, manufacturing practices to make sure that you know the food was produced in an environment that uh, is the uh, has the highest standard for uh, hygiene. Mm-hmm. Um, and one thing I've been uh, discussing with um, uh, some um, some clients recently is everything related related to uh, customs and uh, import exports because once these products uh, are going to be authorized. And you want to, they are uh, manufactured uh, in a certain country. How does it work if you want to sell it abroad? Uh, like it's a huge, uh, like there is, a, there are a lot of like question marks, but uh, like generally speaking is uh, so any type of laws that uh, apply to all type of foods, 
uh, novel food regulations. You can also have like organic regulations that uh, come into play, uh, mostly for plant-based products, uh, because for cell-based, then it's going to be yeah difficult to argue that might be organic because the regulations are not so flexible. Um, and you have also everything related to uh, allergenicity. Um, you know, like the big question mark, it's uh, whether or not a person that is allergic to meat, like meat is not uh, classified as the mandatory allergen that you have to label um, in the Western world. But in Asia, you have a couple of countries like uh, Japan, South Korea, that uh, classify, for instance, beef or pork as an allergen. That's It's also like a matter of uh, consumer protection uh, in the sense that it's it's amazing to be able to uh, uh, create such products, but you have to make sure that uh, people that are at risk of suffering uh, of specific uh, harmful, like bodily reactions, you know, they are uh, considered in the right. in, in this process. It's about the labeling. Mm -hmm, yeah. Exactly. Um, so why do you think Singapore was able to get there before other countries? You know, so sort of what's different about them legally? Um, so legally and also um, legally speaking is because the system is like so on point. It's like one country that is taking the decision instead of having to compromise with uh, 27 uh, countries like in Europe. Uh, and they have also uh, um, people that uh, they have enough like civil servants. Um, like basically when you apply, you have one person dedicated uh, to your dossier. That's not something that is happening in Europe. Uh, and it's also relates to the policy aspect in the sense that Singapore uh, is uh, classified as a food insecure, uh, food insecure country. Uh, when COVID hits, uh, they didn't have enough food, so this is what like uh, um, accelerated the the novel food um, uh, growth there because they are very uh, eager to welcome such um, sources of food. Um, and yeah, so it's, but Singapore at the same time is like it's small market. It's only six million uh, inhabitants, and it's not guaranteed that uh, uh, countries that are part of the ASEAN um, um, uh, groupment, like it's uh, it's like basically a sort of like EU, but like uh, uh, in Asia, you don't have uh, mutual recognition. Like it's not automatic. Uh, so you have uh, countries like Singapore that's very well advanced, and now like some of the countries like Malaysia or Vietnam, they will also be interested, but they don't specifically have the right people uh, in the, the regulatory bodies. But they are uh, they are looking at uh, ways to uh, you know also create such systems. Okay, I, I imagine that Singapore have a very uh, pragmatic approach to these kinds of problems. Um, mm -hmm. and, um yeah, yeah i think it's like you are also have less like uh um lobbies like uh big meat or big dairy uh in singapore as well because you don't have so much space uh, uh i'm assuming that a lot of uh, dairy and meat products are actually uh imported so then you know it's like less pressure from external group to possibly fight uh such um such a movement um so but they are definitely on point and um, um, I think, you know, their expertise will benefit also like uh, other countries. Mm. Uh, and let's see uh, um, how much they will manage to, how far they will manage to drive uh, this. Yeah. Have you had much experience of the lobby groups um, who are fighting against 
we're fighting against cultured meat, you know, the meat groups, the, uh, you know, the intensive farmers and that sort of thing. Like in Europe, it's like, uh, so farmer uh, organizations, um, they uh, make a point that this type of food would be classified as unnatural, but like legally speaking, you don't have, at least in Europe, a definition of what the natural food is. And they use the, the cultural arguments that, you know, if it was, it, it, if it hasn't been created up until now, it's because it shouldn't be eaten. So I think the argument is like not very compelling. Um, and they're also like fighting very hard for this because they don't want to lose their subsidies. Um, like um, the subsidies from the EU, uh, most of them, they go to uh, meat and dairy producers and they feel threatened to have new players coming into play. But in reality, you know, like uh, startups, like especially now, um, it's very difficult for them to scale up. Uh, and it's very unlikely that uh, you're gonna have like 50-50 in the I don't know uh, five upcoming years, like 50% uh, cultivated meat and then 50% uh, traditional meat or meat from intensive farming. Mm. And but like I don't really engage so much with them because sometimes their positions are so strong. And what I don't really like is like I like to have like a real debate, and I'm not interested in having a one-sided uh, conversation. Uh, if you want to move forward and to learn from one another, you have to be willing to listen to your opponent and not screaming and say, this is not uh, even a debate that we should have. It's like that's uh, As a society, we need to rethink the way we are producing our food system. And it's, uh, you know, in the benefit of everybody to have a conversation to discuss about this. Mm. When I've spoken to representatives from the Good Food Institute, they always tell me that they're working alongside farmers um, in regard to education and that sort of thing, which 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 kind of surprises me because I can't imagine farmers wanting to work alongside a body for the future of cultured meat. Yeah, um, it's I think might sound surprising at first, but then it's also something that is uh, necessary because uh, food tech can be frightening to people that have no idea uh, about the whole concept and what uh, values um, the 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 industry is fighting for. Um, and at the end of the day, you know, it's like you need to include them because they are uh, crucial actors in our food system. Uh, but it's to do that step by step. Like at first, it's uh, you know, um, talk to dairy farmers and um, have a discussion with them. That have you thought about maybe transitioning to plant-based uh, dairy alternatives? So instead of mm-hmm. making cows, you can just like uh, grow uh, oats, and you would be able to produce oat milk. Um, when you discuss with your clients, when you uh, when you advise them, um, obviously they want to become commercial as quickly as possible um, Mm -hmm. because they need to start making money. How do you advise them to sort of, um, you know, what do you advise them to do to speed up the process? Is there... So in terms of like novel foods, like not really, if your products has to go for novel food approval, uh, the best you can do is to have a dossier that is uh, contain all, uh, like the best information that you manage to gather. Uh, so in the way that you know it's like well structured and you have uh, thought about any possible scenarios to answer uh, the authorities' questions, 
Uh, and then in terms of um, products that are or already authorized, uh, for instance, like uh, when you do like uh, fish analogs, uh, to make sure that the ingredients that you are using, you know, are already allowed in Europe, um, and to make sure that uh, you know they thought about labeling, consumer education, and so on. Um, what I'm trying to do, like with my clients, is always make sure that you know they understand how uh, the regulatory framework is working, uh, and if they want to go to the market as fast as possible. Uh, for instance, um, if they are based in Europe then it might be worth for them considering exploring another market um, like Singapore or the Gulf country or even the US because they may sell faster. Uh, but yeah, it's uh, I understand that uh, for startups it might be stressful because you are relying on a limited uh, amount of uh, capital each and every uh, time you are raising money. Uh, but that's something that you have to consider from the very start. Like the regulatory strategy sometimes is uh, left at the very hand end, and it's, it's, it's not uh, it's not um, a smart strategy because uh, it can easily backfire it uh, backfire at companies. Yes, and it's very difficult to raise money right now. I have uh, some good contacts with some venture capitalists, and they told me that at the time uh, being they are just doing a, a portfolio monitoring. Uh, they don't uh, really want to invest in new companies. Uh, so let's see what the future holds. Yeah, which is, um, I'm not sure whether that, I mean, obviously they understand their strategy, but you'd have thought right now you can get companies quite cheap. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, <laughs> true. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, like I've done, uh, I've studied like investments uh, law, uh, but uh, then, like uh, for me, uh, whether or not the company is worth investing in, always relate to whether or not the product uh, we have to go through like a no, a long like a uh, regulatory approval process, right. uh, and if they are intended to enter a market that is not already saturated. This is what happened, for instance, with plant-based food. Uh, you see that a lot of uh, companies that are leaving uh, the markets, like Nestle, is going to stop the Garden Gourmet uh, line. Uh, because maybe the products, they didn't uh, answer consumer expectations. But at the end of the day, you you know, when the market is too crowded, only the best ones uh, manage to stay. Yes. And, I, and, and in each country, one company is going to have to spearhead. It's, it's, mm -hmm. It'll need one country who goes and gets uh, approval, which, and, and all the other companies can kind of ride on the back of that. But you know, like in America with Upside um, and Good Food. Um, mm -hmm. I think that was the name of the, the two. Uh, um, yeah. No, kind of Upside, Upside and Good Food. Is that right? Am I right about that? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, um, yeah. Uh, you know, just one last question on that one. Um, I know that they, mm -hmm. they have had the first level of approval in America um, mm -hmm. from, is it the GSA? The, no, the FSA. It's uh, FDA, 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 and then it's going to be the USDA. Uh, the USDA. So that's what they need to do next, is it? So, mm -hmm. and so, what's their next process? Can you just kind of clarify that? Um, so it's going to be like a regulatory, uh, uh, like analysis again, uh, to make sure you know that everything is on point. And the USDA is the one that is uh, uh, also handling like uh, meat like a uh, meat from uh, like a slaughtered uh, animal. So mm. we do have the knowledge for that. Um, and let's see how much time it's going to take. Uh, but something that uh, 
countries or even the US may do further down the line. I mean, the US is already doing uh, that is to have um, like an extra of like novel food regulations, uh, like in the US is the grass system. So generally recognized as safe. Uh, the countries, they may decide to implement further down the line, like a specific category, like uh, cell-based uh, products. Right. And how long do you think it'll be in America before we get approval from the FSDA? I think I'm hopeful, like by the end of the year, um, it okay. could be could be pretty quick. Uh, and so, you know, like once uh, good meat and upside food, they are authorized in Europe, in the, in the U.S., they can uh, compete with uh, uh, companies that uh, uh, manage to get approval, for instance, in Singapore, because we are always talking about upside food and good meat. But the thing is, like in Singapore, you don't have a public list of authorized products. So might be likely, you know, that you have more companies that are just playing, uh, playing it like low key. Uh, and all of a sudden, we will learn about uh, their amazing products. <laughs> Okay, so by the end of the year, that's that's, uh, and then after that, they can commercialize, they can sell it, they can upscale, and you know that's it. It's it's off. the whole industry has begun. Mm -hmm. And then, like uh, once it's authorized in the US, like what happened to uh, imports, and if there would be like a kind of like mutual recognition agreement between the US and Singapore, that's something we can also think about. The nomenclature is also discussed uh, at the FAO uh, level. Um, and also like uh, uh, within uh, trade uh, organizations. Um, and uh, one last thing is like also to have a chat with uh, the international custom uh, organization, you know, which uh, taxation would apply to that type of products. Right. So when it's approved in America, then European companies could sell into America, even if they can't sell into into their own countries. If they manage to get uh, like the the approval in the U.S., then they can sell in uh, in the U.S. But mm. then for companies that are not based in the U.S., it's like how do you import the product that was made in Europe to the U.S.? Yeah, and there might there might be some restrictions on uh, on producing the food in the first place. In you know, if they can't mm -hmm. sell it in in uh, in France, then perhaps they can't produce it in France. Uh, like in France, the ban is only on the sale uh, aspect. Uh, and in Italy, they want to have the ban on both the production and uh, the sale uh, aspect. But uh, in Italy, you only have like one uh, sale-based meat company. And it says a lot, you know, about uh, the attitude of the country uh, regarding uh, alternative proteins uh, as a whole. Right. Well, Matilda, I'm going to let you go now. It's been wonderful talking to you. You you clearly know your subject very well. It's great to have <laughs> to to speak to someone so knowledgeable. Um, Thanks a lot for having me, and um, I'm happy to answer any further question from the lis uh, listeners. <laughs> well, yes, let's see if we have any. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, and thank you very much for talking. And perhaps uh, perhaps we can get you back on one day. Okay, great.